I just believe God. I just believe God. I believe his word. I believe what he said. I believe that he is able to bring revival to Seattle. I believe that he is greater than the cultural giants that would push back against Christianity and the advancement of the gospel in our culture. I believe what we studied in 1 Timothy is true. I believe that in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, he's declared that it's his will that people would be saved. And I believe that applies to Seattle. Does anybody else believe that? I believe God. I just believe God. Joshua and Caleb believed God. They were the only people who believed God, even among fellow believers. They believed God in a way that would cause them to defy even their fellow counselors, counsel of, of Israel, they even, even against Moses and Aaron in this text. We're going to see the story of Joshua begin in this text. We've met him for the very first time in chapter 11, verse 28 of Numbers as we read individually, as we study in groups. Your group curriculum, if you use Explore the Bible, is going to take you to chapter 14 this week, and I want to cover some ground between the Bible reading plan and what the text covers in our group curriculum. This is the story that leads to the gospel itself. In chapter 10, which is where we're at today, if you want to turn with, with me to, to Numbers chapter 10, beginning in verse 33, you'll, you'll meet a guy who's familiar, but he has a different name. This happens a lot in scripture. People are introduced with one name and then later in the text they have another name. Their names just change all the time. They referred to one thing originally and another thing later. And this guy is referred to initially as Jethro, and thereafter as Hobab, both of which would be fantastic country singer-songwriter names. <laughs> and in this meeting with this man with this name, Hobab, Moses' father-in-law is invited to join the people of Israel in their journey. He's invited to be a part of the story of God. He's invited to the promised land. Now he declines, with good reason, and to some benefit, actually. He misses out on the bad things. He misses out on the thirst in the middle of the desert. He misses out on the drama, even some of the scary moments that are coming in this text. He misses out on God's discipline upon God's people. He misses out on a weird pagan uprising. He misses out on the drama that's going to unfold in today's text, but he also misses out on the promised land of God. He misses out on the will of God. He is no longer a part of God's story. This is the last you will hear of Jethro slash Hobab because he declines and he's not a part of the people. This is the last you, last you hear of him. My skeptical friend, curious of the gospel, fascinated by the story, coming to investigate and test the veracity of Christianity's claims. You come to a church that goes book by book through the Bible, and as we go through this text, you're going to have the invitation to join the people of God to become a Christian today. I pray that you would not go the way of Hobab and decline and miss out on the story of God. Miss out on the hardships, yes but miss out on the promised land of heaven. Don't miss your invitation to be a part of God's people. After we hear from Hobab, we 
We come to verse 33. Here's what the text says. They set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. This is referred to as an imprecatory prayer. There are imprecatory psalms. These are tantamount to God whoop them <laughs> prayers. Have you ever prayed one of these over your spouse? <laughs> Moses prays this as the ark would set out. And then, verse 35, or verse, verse 36, and when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. All right, get used to reading that. This is the first complaint of the people, but it's the first of many complaints throughout the book of Numbers. Look for your reflection with brutally honest introspection. When you see the Israelites complain, search your own heart and let the Spirit convict where he convicts, because though it's fun to make fun of the Israelites, we're often guilty of the same things. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The word Tibera means burning. Now, the rabble, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB renders this, the riffraff, I like that, that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, they're complaining about the menu. they, They aren't saying they don't have enough to eat. Do you understand? They're complaining that they missed the food from their days in slavery. They, they aren't complaining they haven't been fed. God has provided for them miraculously. They're complaining because they want something other than what God has provided. Hello. So they're listing out the menu. And then they get to the, the latter part of the, the final word of verse five, and they say, and the garlic. Now, I'm actually feeling them on that one. <laughs> I would probably complain too. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. All right, let's talk about that. There is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So they open it up. There is nothing at all. I mean, like, that's obviously incorrect, but they correct themselves with what follows the coordinating conjunction. But this manna to look at. What was the manna? The following verses explain. Verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the, the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So God was miraculously providing for his people. He was miraculously feeding his people. It was good for one day and one day alone. Do you see the imagery that Jesus was drawing upon when he said in teaching us the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need to get through today. Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's gonna worry 
about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Give me, God, what I need to get through today. And I'm trusting you every day, God. I'm trusting you, God, to provide for me what I need right now. A faith that is dependent upon repeated signs and wonders and miracles is not faith at all. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. We are already jaded by the miracles that surround us. The Israelites were miraculously fed by God every single day, and they became jaded to it. They were so saturated by the miracles that just permeated, literally physically permeated the ground around them, that they craved more. If God performs miracles among you and your, your faith is dependent upon those miracles, it's not faith at all, because when those miracles cease, so does your faith. Jesus warned against the generation that demanded signs and wonders, because that's no faith at all. Miracles of God, outpourings of, of God miraculously like this, are not the basis of our faith. They are byproducts of it. This is the weakness of a generation that is dependent upon signs and wonders and miracles. When the miracles stop, so does your faith. When you do get the miracles, you want more. There is no people group in history who had a front row seat to more miracles than these, the original generation of the Exodus Israelites. And there was no people group who oscillated in their faithfulness to Yahweh more than these, the Old Testament Israelites. Don't tell me that if God does a miracle for you that you'll believe him because for millennia of human history that has been precisely the opposite of reality. People have seen miracles and defied God. They've seen miracles and asked for more miracles. They've been miraculously fed by God and then complained about it for crying out loud. We have nothing at all but this manna. We have nothing at all. Obviously, obviously like a, a fatuous thing to predicate a complaint upon, especially when you employ reductio ad absurdum. We have nothing at all but this manna to look at. Employ reductio ad absurdum. We have nothing but what we have. Do you see? Like it's, already, it's already a self-conflicting complaint. We don't have anything except for the thing that we have. We have nothing at all except for this manna. What was the manna? It was God's miraculous provision for them. So the complaint really is, we have nothing except for what God has miraculously provided for us. I don't know if they meant to do this, but they just blessed me with that complaint. We have nothing except for that which God has miraculously given to us. Isn't that true of us too? I mean, like, spot the lie, you know? We have nothing except for what God has given us. So we are utterly dependent on God every day for everything that we need. And we have everything we need from God. We have nothing at all except for that which God has miraculously provided. God's provided for you, hasn't he? He's always put food on the table. He's always brought you through. That's why you're here today. He's always come through in the past. He's always provided for you in the past. Would you give? If you've never given before, would you consider this? That God has given you everything. If God's laying on your heart right now to give to Highlands Community Church, just do so in light of this complaint because we have nothing at all except for that which God has miraculously given to us. This is not the last time you're gonna see somebody who isn't really speaking out in faith, making a profound teaching on God's behalf. You're gonna see 
a pagan prophet speak on God's behalf later in the book of Numbers. You're going to see in the New Testament, a high priest who didn't believe in Jesus serve as the mouthpiece for God. You're going to see people who didn't really believe in God speak on God's behalf without realizing it. In this moment, it was his own people, the Israelites, who were complaining. And in their complaint, we see a blessing. Look at verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all of this people on me? That I conceive all this people, that I give them birth, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers. See him distancing himself from them as he complains about them. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. In the book of Numbers, Moses is described as the most patient man ever. Numbers in Deuteronomy describe him as the most patient man ever, but he's at his limit right now. Look at verse 15. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. He is at his wit's end. He says, God, if this is how it's gonna be, would you just kill me now? I'm gonna deal with these people, spoiled, rotten people. Right? They have a Honda and they complain that it's not a Maserati. If they had a Maserati, they would complain that it's not a Bugatti. Right? Kill me if this is how it's going to be. And, and in all seriousness, I mean, you can see, I think this is a legitimate prayer. I don't think he was being overly dramatic. In fact, this is not the last time you're going to see God's man ask God for death while doing God's will. If you struggle with suicidal ideation, you resonate well with Moses. God, if this is how it's going to be, would you just take me out? You know that you have something in common with Elijah. Elijah prayed for death too. You have something in common with Moses. Moses prayed for death. And while God's answer to Elijah was, all right, sleep and eat, there's something deeply spiritual about food, I'm telling you. <laughs> Look at how God comforted Moses. He showed him that just like you, as you sit surrounded by love on all sides, you are not alone. You are not alone, you are not alone, you are not alone. You are surrounded by love on all sides, people who will carry your burdens with you. Look at how he dealt with Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. He took some of the spirit that was upon Moses and put it on some of the other elders of Israel. We at Highlands Community Church are elder governed. Did you know that? I don't actually make every decision for the church. I'm merely the lead pastor. I'm accountable to a board of elders. Now, where do we get that idea? Well, it's a biblical model. And not only in the New Testament, we see it all the way back to the book of Numbers. 
that the responsibility for the people would not fall merely to the figurehead of Moses, but Moses would work through his team, that he would lead through Aaron and the Levites, the priesthood, that every tribe had its own delegation of leadership, and now he's surrounded, this time literally and physically in a tent, surrounded by 70 elders, and they share the burden of leadership with Moses. I marvel at the innate leadership organizational structure that is demonstrated through this incredible, incredible book. Look at verse 24 of the same chapter. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So just as he said he would, he took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on these 70 elders. And as you'll see, as you read individually, even more than just those who were around the tent. Last week, as I was preaching, my voice was like almost completely gone. Like I could barely talk. And I had two more sermons to go. And a brother in Christ, who though he is physically blind, sees a lot better than a lot of us do. Paul Guerrero came and knocked on my office door. And in light of a, a beautiful Old Testament tradition, he had anointing oil with him. He said, can I just pray for you for your voice that you'd be able to get through the next two services? And he took the anointing oil on the tip of his finger and he just drew a cross on my forehead and he just prayed that my voice would make it through the rest of our services. And then I, I came in for worship and I, I saw B.R. Dunk, who is dear brother in the Lord, He's a guy that I've been meeting with early every Thursday morning at Starbucks. Some of you guys have seen us there. I'm working with him, showing him what, what I know of preaching because he's an elder candidate for the elder board of Highlands Community Church. And as I met with him, he told me amazing news. One of his sons, one of his several sons, <laughs> has given his life to Christ. And so I do that thing I do where I, 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 I hug him with my head. You know what I'm talking about? I hug him and put my head against his and when I did, some of the anointing oil got on his head. And when I stepped back and I looked at BR's shiny head, the Lord laid on my heart, this is discipleship. This is discipleship, like the same anointing that's on you. It's placed on the one whom you disciple. The same spirit that is upon you, pass that on to other people. And you equip them for works of ministry. Isn't that what's happening here in this text? The same spirit that is upon Moses is put out upon the other 70 elders that surround the tent. This is another one of the Old Testament models of an event that is foreshadowing a New Testament truth. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter gets up the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. There's a crowd of Jews from, from every language, every dialect of Hebrew. And He's sharing the gospel from Joel chapter two. And as he shares the gospel, the Holy Spirit pours out. These people are able to speak in languages they weren't trained and they're able to hear in languages they've never studied. It's a miracle of speaking and hearing. The gift of tongues pours out so that now the work of the Tower of Babel has been lifted and there is a Jew from every known language who now knows the gospel. And as they disperse, salvation is indeed first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, the same guy, is struggling with prejudice in his heart, still clinging to some of the Old Testament dietary laws. And God, through a vision, is confronting him and showing him 
that now all things have been made clean. Just in that moment, there's a knock at the door. He's brought to Cornelius's house where there's a crowd of Gentiles there. Now these Gentiles likely all spoke the same language, but to show Peter that the same Holy Spirit that was upon him, the same Holy Spirit that poured out at Pentecost was now upon these Gentiles, they began speaking in tongues. And this was to show Peter that the Holy Spirit was upon Gentiles just as he was upon Jews at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. They began to speak Praise to God, prophesy in the Lord to confirm to Peter, God's man, my spirit is upon them. Do you see how this is a precursor to that New Testament truth? The Holy Spirit pours out upon the 70 elders that surround the tent and they, just like millennia later, the Gentiles at Cornelius' house would begin to prophesy filled with the spirit of God. Now, some of the elders are outside the camp. This is a temporary outpouring of the spirit because the text says that they did not continue doing it in verse 25, and there's a young man, his name is Joshua at this point, and he sees people prophesying and he does not know what's happening. So he goes to Moses to tell on them. What Joshua doesn't realize is that God is the one who's sovereign over this. God will speak through whom he will speak. It is his spirit, it's his word, it's his will, it's his way. So God chose to do this through these men at this time. You're gonna learn more about this Joshua. But once again, in another name change, you're going to see that his name wasn't originally Joshua. In chapter 13 of Numbers, we see 12 spies chosen. Divine espionage. A spy from each tribe is sent out. The, 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 the spy from the tribe of Ephraim is named Hoshea. Hoshea's name in Hebrew means desire for salvation. And in verse 16 of Numbers 13, the text says, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So we've met Joshua before in 1128. We see him named as Hoshea here in chapter 13, but he's officially given the name of Joshua by Moses in 1316. Jesse, Tired of all the name changes. Why is everybody in the Bible Jason Bourne? Pick a name. Go with it. Even if it's Hobab. Be consistent. Abraham becomes Abram. Ah! Sarai becomes Sarah. Pick one. Simon becomes Peter. Becomes Cephas. Ah! Saul, Paul, pick a name. Hoshea, Joshua. All right, here's the thing. You're actually more accustomed to name changes than you think. I asked Facebook for the names of people's pets and then the nickname that they gave that pet and then the next iteration of that nickname followed by the bizarre amalgamation of nicknames that they now actually call their pet. And I found that I'm, I'm not the only one, <laughs> right? There's even a song that has all the nicknames for our dog. And so far, only Nabbit and Hannah, they're the only people who have heard it. Nobody else is allowed to. But here, here is some of the survey results as I ask people what they call their pets and what their pets are actually called. Marley became Marley Pants. And then finally, Pants head. <laughs> Minnie became Schmin Min, became Schminny, 
And then finally, Schmindli von Schmindmin. <laughs> Rusty became Rust, that's more efficient, became Rusty Butt, <laughs> became Rusty Lincoln Hovater, get out of the pantry. <laughs> Bilbo, Billy Boy, Billy Willy Boy, <laughs> Billy Willy Bobo. Next slide, please. <laughs> Gidget became Wampa, became Gidget Wampa Mama. <laughs> Reginald Derek, we have a dog named after one of our pastors, Derek Nelson. <laughs> but it's more regal, literally regal, Reginald. Derek became Reggie, became Reg, became Reggie Boo Boo. <laughs> yes. Tom became Thomas. And then it gets biblical. Become Thomas, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally, Thomas, ugh, stop. And then some of my Lifeway friends got in on this. There were like, there were like several published authors on this thread. There were like 200 responses. John Piper's son chimed in. Riley became Rye Girl, became Rye Baby Sister Girl. And then finally, this dog is named Rye baby, cry baby, sock him in the eye baby, eat a piece of pie baby, don't tell me no lies baby. You are quite used to name changes, so get over it in the Bible. <laughs> the name Hoshea becoming Joshua actually has a meaning to it. You understand? So can we grant the name changes in the Bible? Yes. You're actually really, really accustomed to it. It's not that big of a deal for Hoshea to become Joshua. Here's verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage. It's remarkable that Joshua would receive this because that's the, the opening theme of the book of Joshua. Be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Tzin to Rehob near Lebo Hamat. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Achiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol, which is Hebrew for the word cluster, because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. All right, it's speculative, but here's an idea. Here's about what the size of a cluster of grapes would be if it took two men to carry it on a pole. <laughs> Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. 
So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. Do you remember from Genesis 6? The sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. In my interpretation, this was a lie. The Nephilim were wiped out by the flood. So it's not possible for direct descendants of the Nephilim to have been there. But they are drawing upon the legendary fear that people had of the Nephilim from Genesis 6, from the antediluvian era. I believe that they are giving an exaggeratedly negative report of the promised land so that people would have fear in their hearts and they wouldn't take on the conquest that God called them to. Here's chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to, to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is fatuous. This is utterly absurd. They have been set free from slavery miraculously. And they're even evoking the safety of their women and children as though they would be better off as slaves, better off in the wilderness. By the way, which is it? They said twice it'd be better for them to have died in Egypt or better for them to have died in the wilderness. And yet they're afraid their women and children are gonna die. Like they can't even complain consistently. And when they complain, they demonstrate an utter disbelief in what God has promised and what God has said. To evoke the Nephilim, I believe, is to evoke a fear that God didn't really finish the job with the flood. They don't really believe that God's work was sufficient. They believe that now they've got to face these somehow resurrected zombie monster demon folk, and now they're better off going back to slavery, back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. This must have been heartbreaking for Joshua to see. Because Joshua was Moses' assistant. And now Moses is face down before the back to Egypt committee. Look at verse six. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land tore their clothes. That's a sign of intense grief, intense mourning at the sight of it. And said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. This teaching that there were giants there. It's true that there were giants there. I believe it's an exaggeration to say that they were Nephilim. They were descended from Anak. Now we know, we know that the Anakites would later produce a giant who would face, on, uh, face the, the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 17. The Anakites were the ancestors to Goliath. Now, we've just fast-forwarded several generations in Israelite history, but think about that for a minute. What this generation of Israelites didn't deal with, a later generation of Israelites would deal with. If you just avoid dealing with what God has told you to do, you don't slay the giants now, you're, they're not going to go away. You're going to face them or your kids will face them. Okay? I know that because I'm a millennial and I bought a house in 2008. All right? Like what? That's the only legitimate millennial gripe, okay? <laughs> We bought houses just in time for the market to collapse. 
What you don't deal with, subsequent generations will deal with. What the Israelites didn't handle gave rise to a former enemy of Israel. In 1 Samuel 17, we already know how the story ends because even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe the Bible, the Bible has had such incredible influence over culture that you know how the story of David and Goliath goes. Think about that for a minute, right? David is a young guy. He's been sent to Costco by his dad and he shows up with nachos and he sees Goliath and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? Now, you know the story of what comes next, but do you know what happens right before the battle? Do you know that David's own brother, Eliab, is calling him evil for showing up? You just came to see the battle. You have pride in your heart, all right? Shh, try to shush David. What you don't, you know about David fighting Goliath, but you don't know about David fighting his own brother beforehand. You don't know about David fighting his own fellow Israelites just to get to the battle. In order to get face to face with Goliath, he had to go through nobody short of the king himself. David first had to defy his fellow believers before he could actually fight the fight with the enemy of God. Do you see the parallels between that text and this text in which Joshua and Caleb likewise face giants in the distant land? But first they have to face their fellow believers. It's striking. It's a striking thing. Some of the greatest heartache that will be dealt to you, Christian, as you are faithful to the word of God, is gonna come from fellow Christians. Some of the biggest pushback that you receive is gonna come from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you're taking God at his word, but his word seems particularly unbelievable in that circumstance, particularly egregious, particularly offensive. And your brother or sister in Christ may be enticed by the flimsy and fleeting accolades promised to those who virtue signal by defying God's word. And they've fallen for it, and they're going to defy you. Would you believe God? Believe God, Christian, like Joshua and Caleb did. Joshua and Caleb had the same information as everybody else, but came to a radically different conclusion. And it was Joshua and Caleb alone who believed God. Therefore, it was Joshua and Caleb alone who had actually received the promised land. Everybody else would die on the distant shore. Believe God, even if you are the only believer who does. It's a difficult thing, but it's a necessary thing. Not all believers will stand true to what God has said at times. If I ever fail to deliver to you the truth of what God's word has said, ignore me. Do you understand? If you're reading your word and you hear something come out of my mouth that's different, go with what the word says. Believe God and be prepared likewise to stand face-to-face with your fellow believers in Christ. The basic interpretive hermeneutic at play in the Back to Egypt Committee was the same interpretive hermeneutic employed by the devil himself in Eden. God didn't really mean what he said. Think on the serpent's words. Did God really say? No, he means the opposite of that. That proposal that God might mean the precise opposite of what he has patently, obviously, clearly said is the satanic hermeneutic It was at play in Eden. It's at play in the Back to Egypt Committee. It's at play in our modern context as well. All of liberal theology stems from this hermeneutic. Maybe God means the opposite of what he said. I know that God said that this is how how the church should work, but maybe, maybe he means the opposite. I know that God said this is how marriage is designed, but maybe he means the opposite. 
I know that God said this, but maybe he means the opposite. I know that God said this is a sin, but maybe he means the opposite. Maybe he means the opposite of what he said is the classic hermeneutic of liberal theology. It's the same hermeneutic at play in the back to Egypt committee. I know that God called us out of Egypt. Maybe we should go back. Maybe God meant the opposite. I know God called us out of slavery. Maybe we should go back to slavery. I know God called us to the promised land, but maybe he means the opposite of that. Maybe God means the opposite of what he said is a common hermeneutic within liberal theology and something you're gonna come face to face with and be tempted to employ yourself. What, would you look at what the text says? Look at Joshua and Caleb. The Back to Egypt committee had some good points, had some legitimate reasons behind their case. Joshua and Caleb just believed God and they stood alone in the council. Even their mentor, Moses, fell. Stay true to what God has said Believe God the way that Joshua believed God. Believe God the way that Caleb believed God and received the promised land, Christian. Caleb himself, who speaks up boldly in verse 30 of chapter 13, would himself dwell where the giants once lived. You can see, see a glimpse of this in, in Joshua chapter 15, verse 13. It says, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Sound familiar? And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Achiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. These are giants. Three giants. David slew Goliath. Caleb kicked three of them out of their town and told them that it was his now. And he was old by then. Imagine that. Imagine like this normal-sized Hebrew old guy showing up in a town full of giants and saying, I live here now. That's Caleb. Because Caleb believed God. Caleb believed God. You believe God, that giant's house is going to be yours. <laughs> it's a beautiful story, but it's a difficult one. It sounds poetic and it's really easy to grasp intellectually right now, but emotionally it's taxing in the moment. You understand what I mean? There are certain things that are really easy to grasp intellectually sitting in the chair, but when it really is time to stand up for what God's word has said, your heart is thumping, sympathetic nervous system kicks in, emotion clouds your better judgment, that's what it actually feels like. I like those moments because I know that's when God's at work. Stand up for what God has said. Believe God the way that Joshua believed God, the way that Caleb believed God, defying even your fellow believers if you must, so that God will conquer the giants. It was the story with Joshua and Caleb. It was the story with David. I believe it's the story with you today. It's a story with revival in Seattle right now. There are giants out there, aren't there? There are giants. There are tremendously powerful cultural forces that would Defy Christianity, misrepresent Christianity. Defy God's move and, and bigot, bigotry and hatred towards Christians and God himself would try to hold back the move of the church. But I believe God. I believe that God wants to save people of Seattle. I believe that's why we're here. I believe that God is able. So would you believe God the way that Joshua believed God? the way that Caleb believed God. And would you, Christian, bring as many people to the promised land with you as you possibly can before you die? Hoshea changed to Joshua. What of that? Hoshea, the desire for salvation, becomes known as Joshua. Joshua's name means the Lord is salvation. Here's the name Hoshea in Hebrew with the article in front of it, Hoshea. 
The name Joshua appears this way in Hebrew. The name Joshua was originally pronounced Yeshua in Hebrew because the letter J didn't exist in Hebrew or Greek. Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Yeshua. The English spelling of that Greek transliteration is Jesus. So Yeshua's name is literally Yeshua's name. Joshua's name is the same as Jesus' in Hebrew. Yeshua, foreshadowing Yeshua. Do you see the Lord at work in the Old Testament? Do you see the shadow of the cross in the Exodus sands? Jesus personified and typified and represented and foreshadowed through Joshua. His name was changed from the desire of salvation to the Lord of salvation. Do you see the Lord of salvation in Numbers 13? And do you see the Lord of salvation in Jesus alone? Do you see the Lord of salvation as his own fellow brethren Israelites threatened to stone him to death? And do you see the Lord of salvation in Jesus as he went to the cross? Do you see Yeshua, the Lord of salvation, standing boldly, strong and courageous, crying out on God's behalf? And do you see Yeshua teaching on God's behalf? Do you see Yeshua protected by the glory of the Lord at the end of this book? And do you see Yeshua protected by the glory of the Lord? Do you see Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament, inherit the promised land? And do you see Yeshua, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father in heaven and the promised land forevermore? Both Yeshua's numbers and the Gospels point us to Jesus and his ultimate promise. Do you believe? Do you believe, Yeshua, the Lord is salvation? Do you believe that the promises of the Old Testament were true? Do you see now how far back the story goes? That salvation in the New Testament era was not a last minute addition. It has deep roots that go back millennia. That the Lord has been salvation for thousands of years. The Lord was salvation for Israel. The Lord is salvation for you today. That same promise, those same people, they're at work in this room. The same covenant is at play. Not all who are descended from Abraham share in Abraham's covenant. Now all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you place your faith in the Lord right here and now? It's a beautiful story, and it's happening in your seat. Don't be like Jethro. Don't be like Hobab, who would receive the invitation to be a part of the people of God, who would miss out if he declines on all the drama and the difficulty, but ultimately would also miss out on the will of God and miss out on the promised land. This is your moment, Jethro. Would you abide by the promise? Would you step into the will of God? Would you accept the invitation, respond to the drawing of the Holy Spirit upon your heart and give your life to Jesus today? Because Yeshua, the Lord, is salvation. He always has been, he always will be. He was salvation for the people of Israel. He's your salvation today. Would you tell Yeshua that you believe him? If the Holy Spirit of God, that same fire that guided the Israelites through the wilderness, that same fire is pulling upon your heart right now, would you tell him you believe him? Would you tell him you believe John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. Would you tell God you believe him? Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So would you take God's word and pray them to God? Would you confess to God that you've sinned? What's the next verse I'm gonna say, Highlands Community Church? Romans 6, 23. Would you tell God, you confess to God 
You believe that the wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Would you tell Jesus, tell Yeshua you believe him when he said that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. And Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you call upon the Lord is salvation? Call upon the true Yeshua right here and now and be a part of the family of God, taken to the promised land of God, heaven forevermore. Have you seen the grapes? Would you come to the promised land with me? pray to God. I believe you, Lord. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son, that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Yeshua. I believe that Yeshua is the way. I believe that Yeshua is the truth. I believe that Yeshua is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Yeshua, except through Jesus. And so I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, by the Holy Spirit of God, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. I believe, Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. You made the promise in the desert and you're fulfilling it in my heart right now. I wanna be a part of your people, taking you to the promised land forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand and worship with us? Some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus.